Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. You are listening to AVFC Extra, a no-nonsense look at the club we all love. Brought to you by the Claret and Blue Podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Claret and Blue Podcast, AVFC Extra. We're joined by a special guest today, uh, commentator extraordinaire, Mr. Darren Fletcher. Are we allowed to call you Fletch like everybody else, Darren? Or? <laughs> call me whatever you like, I don't mind as long. <laughs> Within reason. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Um, you're one of the few people we can't chant our favourite. Have you won the European Cup? Chant at. Um, <laughs> but um, I know you've been able to watch watch. I suppose a fair bit of Villa. How many how many Villa games you managed to get to this season, Darren? Uh, three or four, I, w- I would think. But I've enjoyed it. I, I like watching them. I, I, in a in a in a mad way, I'm a bit of a nostalgic. So, kind of 1980s football. I, I really quite enjoy so I sat the other day I watched Villa against Juventus in the, the European Cup Villa Park which I'd not seen I remember listening to it on Radio 2 way back when I'd never seen the game so I've got a bit of a soft, soft spot for Villa being from the, the East Midlands and the bit of Midlands club it's a great ground to go and commentate at decent experience going there with with Forrest as a Forrest fan when I was younger too so I like to keep an eye on the Villa. I think certain clubs should be in the top flight. I think Aston Villa are one of them. You know, when you, you drive up to the stadium, it's fantastic. People are really friendly when you go there and, and work there. You've got a lot of time for the manager, Dean Smith, who I think has done a tremendous job. And I think it's really um, it's really good that they've, they've gone down the route of trying to put together not only a good team, but a really exciting team as well. So on the eye, they're really good to watch. Got a soft spot for Matty Cash who I know well from his time at Forest, and I think has been brilliant. So I think we did you a big favour there. Um, and it'll be hugely popular for a long time. Um, so, yeah, yeah, Villa doing really well this season, but a really real feel-good story, so I'm really enjoying it. You've commentated on us for our two seasons in the Premier League now. What do you think's changed this year for Villa? Because every time we do one of these podcasts, we sit here and go, I don't know what Villa have done to turn this around. From a commentator's perspective, what, what is it that you've noticed that Villa are better at this time around? Well, the big thing was, I thought at the start of last season, that it was difficult for Dean to work out what the best team was going to be because they'd signed so many players, which is obviously a necessity when you get promoted from the championship. The step-up is so big. Some are going to work and some aren't. And it, it does take a period of settling down. Not helped, of course, last season by the fact the striker uh, position was a, was a real problem all the way through. So I think that held you back because obviously if you can score goals when you get promoted, it's it's a big thing. You can sometimes get through it as Sheffield United did by winning games 1-0, but it's difficult. But I thought as the season settled down and, and Dean Smith found a formula and a group that suited him, you know, performances started to improve. You've always had the wild card in the team, you know, the mercurial talent of Jack Grealish, who would play, I think, in, in any team in the Premier League. And I include the side who are top of the table at the moment in that Manchester City. I still think he'd get a game for them. Brilliant player. Um but I think this season, Villa seem to have gone from trying not to lose matches to actually wanting to win them. And I think you've got the players now that can win you games. 
And I think, you know, getting that bit of confidence early in the season with a good start, the big win against Liverpool, and then you can build on that. And now when you look at Aston Villa, I watched them against Arsenal at the weekend. I commentated on the game. There is no inferiority complex. They know they're a, a very good Premier League team and they play that way. They've got a really good goalkeeper now and two solid central defenders, so they're well organised. But then when they get over the halfway line, Ollie Watkins, Jack Grealish, John McGinn, whoever's playing in the wide position, whether it be Traore or Al Ghazi, really good players. The fullbacks are progressive, particularly cash down the other side. And I just think the recruitment has been really, really good this season, that they've gone and identified areas of the team they wanted to make better, and they've done it. The players that they signed in the summer are playing, so they've made the team better, not just the squad better. And I think over the course of a gradual build with a very bright manager, with a clear um, a clear plan as to what he wants the team to look like and wants the team to be, it's paying off. I just think they've done it the right way. And when you do things the right way, you get rewarded. We're very biased when it comes to Jack Grealish. Um, you know, he's the kind of archetypal kind of Roy of the Rovers. Is he as good <laughs> as we think he is? And I'll qualify that by saying we probably think, well, we've had debates whether he's the greatest player in Aston Villa's history. But okay. over and above that, we probably think he's one of the top five players in world football at the moment. OK. I mean, look, that's a big call. Top five in world football is a big call. He's a fantastic footballer. I think sometimes when we try and put them into tables, it's really difficult to do. You know, who's your top ten of this? Who's your top five in that? Because there's always a group of people that that you would leave out. I think if you're an Aston Villa fan and you want to believe that Jack Grealish is in the top five players in the world at the moment, go for it. Go for it. Because why wouldn't you enjoy a talent like that? He can do anything. He's bright, wonderfully gifted footballer. Absolutely is Aston Villa through and through, which makes it even more special for everybody. The fact that one of your own is, is the best player at your club, which is so rare in the modern game. But I think you've only got to look at the way he slotted into the England team. And I think we spoke to him last week, BT Sport, before the match. Um, and he's so obsessed at the moment with becoming a fixture for England that he's kind of established himself now as a Premier League player. And now he wants to establish himself on the international stage. And I think it's so refreshing that you see a, a relatively young player who's doing as well as he is, but constantly sets goals for himself. So what his actual place in world football is at the moment, I, I wouldn't know. But what I would say is that the attitude you see, the will to win, the inbuilt desire, allied to the ability he's got, you can be pretty confident that whatever is inside the mind and body of Jack Grealish, he will maximise his opportunity to the limit. And that can only be good for Villa, can only be good for England. And I think that we've still got the best of Jack Grealish to see. Um, and I think he'll continue to get better, continue to play with, with a tremendous amount of confidence and, and the, the desire to entertain as well as win. And I think he's a special talent. He really is a special talent. Would you qualify him as world class? I think we need to see a little bit more before he gets into the world class. I think he's got world class potential. But I think to be world class, you have to do it for a little bit longer at Premier League level. I think he needs to go and prove himself in an England shirt over a period of time. And the Euros in the summer will answer that question. If, if he plays for England over the course of, of, of the summer in a European Championships and does well, then he, he's world-class, of course. The talent at the moment is world-class. We just need to see a little bit more. Um, but his performances 
on more than one occasion this season have been world-class. So it's how you define world-class. I mean, in reality, I think the, the world-class debate is a fascinating one because I think, what do you do with Messi and Ronaldo then? If you put a list together of world-class players over the last decade, they, they'd be the only two in it because they're the only two that have been in that rarefied air. So then you're saying, would you put Jack into that category? If you can start to make comparisons between him and world-class footballers, then you are edging towards the day when you say, look, he's genuinely world-class. So, yeah, I think, I think on occasions this season he's been world-class. I think to absolutely now define him as world-class, he might just need this summer tournament to, to confirm that. I'm a big Grealish fan, though, so I'm coming at it from that standpoint. I think he should be in the England team. I like players like him. Phil Foden, Jack Grealish, James Madison. You know, people like that get me off my seat. Young English footballers who the sky's the limit for them. So I'm, I'm biased too in that regard, not with an Aston Villa connection, but with that type of footballer being the kind of player that I, I, I absolutely love watching. But I think, I think you've nailed the, point, the, the, the key point in that it's not happened by fluke. Jack Grealish is a very right. gifted, gifted footballer, but each time of his development, he's always thought, what more do I need to do? And I think sometimes we, we're very protective, as well as fans, we're very protective of Jack Grealish, but sometimes there's, there's this kind of outside perception that he's arrogant and that, do you know what I mean? He's the kind of pretty boy with the slick back hair and the little shin pads. But there's actually, I don't think, I think the arrogance is a supreme confidence and it's underpinned by a kind of brilliant work ethic. I'm not sure that you can be world class if that's if going back to that question. I don't think you can be world class unless you've got that streak of arrogance. It doesn't have to be a bad thing. It doesn't have to be a a negative character trait. It can be something that is, that's extremely valuable for what you're trying to do. I mean, you turn around and say that Messi has an arrogance, and you'd say Ronaldo has an arrogance, and you'd say De Bruyne has an arrogance. And if you sit down in the company of Kevin De Bruyne, you'll find out he's the nicest guy in the world, but stick him on a football pitch. And he's got the arrogance. You need it to be able to f- perform in the manner that, that these individuals do. Um, and, I, and I think from a Grealish perspective, just going back to that point about maximising what he has, it was, it was very heartwarming and great to see that he was prepared to go and play as a lone player for Notts County and learn and go and play that level of football against seasoned professionals and learn what it's like at the other end of the spectrum. That will have been so important to his development as a footballer. And so often now you see talented footballers in big clubs, academies, who don't want to drop down and do that because they see it as beneath them. They don't want to go and do the hard stuff and the mucky stuff and go and play on pitches that they're probably never going to see again against players that they're only going to play against in the FA Cup or the League Cup. But he was prepared to go and do it. And I think that tells you a lot about him. That he knows what's inside him and he knows how he wants to unlock it. And he's been prepared to do it. And I think that gives him a real chance to, by the time this is all said and done, and we look at Jack Grealish, age 35, and we look back on the body of work, I think that the fact that he approaches things in that manner gives him a great chance of being really successful at what he does. I asked for a couple of questions on Twitter this morning saying if you could ask a football commentator or anything, what would you ask? So this isn't aimed at Darren Fletcher or BT Sports. It's just general <laughs> media. So don't take these personally if they're a bit too uh, too harsh. But somebody asked me, did, did they, so did a, did a football commentator have blinkers on for the last four years or only, only realising how good Grealish is this year? Why is national media a little bit surprised that Villa are doing so well? It's been 20 games and we're still performing. Obviously, we're biased to say that we watch us every week, but every time we're on TV, yeah. great or whatever, it's almost like a surprise that Villa are good now, where we're kind of just used to it. Yeah, well, I think from the Jack Grealish 
perspective. I think any Aston Villa supporter four years ago knew that Jack Grealish would be the player he is now. He's better than the rest of us because I think you've got to prove it in the top league. And I think we, we, we're seeing Jack Grealish now play at a ridiculously high standard in the most difficult league in world football. So to confirm the ability of a player, it's all right doing it in the championship. That's fine. But there's good players in the championship who don't go and play well in the Premier League. You've got to go and prove yourself against the best. And not only has he proved it against the best, particularly this season, but he's done it in a dominant fashion, which does put him on that pedestal. Um, with regard to Aston Villa, I mean, I, I've been a big believer in them from early in the season. I was lucky enough to commentate on the game at West Ham last season when Villa stayed up. Um, and it was a bit of, bit of a skin of the teeth job with the big wins towards the back end of the season and then the final day in London. But I think, you know, when you're a Villa fan, some people who are football commentators might be Villa fans, but the people who aren't just need a little bit more convincing sometimes. But I think what I would say about myself is that I enjoy, I enjoy them as a, as a team. I like Dean as a manager and I think the players that he signed are, um, are really good. I like the, the blend of the team. I think they're an exciting team to watch. I think they're a good all-round team. And I'm really pleased that they're in the argument at the moment for a place in Europe next season. And I think if they could do that, it would be remarkable. But I think you've just got to give these things time. You know, you can't just expect to get promoted from the championship and then be top eight, and then the following year be top four. It, it's difficult to do that. Um, but listen, we're football commentators. If you ever read what's said about a football commentator on social media after the match, you wouldn't expect the questions to be particularly fair. <laughs> and when, when, um... when they describe us as they, we are the same as everybody else, you know. We are just normal blokes who just do a, that for a, for a living. We're not, we're not like a, a breed or a species. We are the same as everybody else. Speaking of they, can we get, can we get their or your view on Dean Smith? He's another one yeah. who, again, we kind of, we, we give a big claret and blue hug because, you know, you, you, I'm sure you, you've used the phrase of his dad, dad sweeping the, uh, the whole end and, and all this kind of thing. He's been in the bookies odds at the moment. He's been kind of touted as future England manager. He's kind of yeah. quite quite high up there. He's doing well in the Premier League. He's English. Um, you know, it's a bit of a bit of a cautionary tale because we these flashbacks of when Grant Taylor kind of got Villa back on a on a kind of um, yeah. a level footing and then kicked on, um, however many years ago. What what's what's been your experience of Dean Smith when you've come across him to, to kind of interview him or when you've commentated on his teams and, and the job he's doing generally? I'll tell you something, and, and Dean won't remember this, but for some reason it, it sticks in my mind. I was in I was in America on holiday a long, 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 long time ago. I would say probably around two thousand. And I wandered down, I was a local radio commentator at the time in Nottingham covering forest. I wandered down one day and Dean was actually sat by the pool as a Crew Alexandra player. And I ended up chatting to Dean for 15 minutes, 20 minutes. But it always stuck in my mind that it was quite bizarre that I bumped into a footballer from England on holiday. 
I went somewhere on the same holiday and Pat Rice was shopping. So it was this bizarre holiday where I bumped into Dean Smith and Pat Rice. I'd, I'd always had this thought in my mind. Of course, then when he becomes a manager, you think, oh, I chatted to him by the swimming pool in Florida all those years ago. And look at him now, he's managing. But I think as a bloke, he's a very approachable, he's a very approachable guy. He's an everyman, isn't he? He's just, he, he, he's not like a, a football manager per se. He's just a decent bloke. So I think you pull for guys like that. Chris Wilder, decent bloke. You know, Dean Smith, decent bloke. There's a lot of decent blokes around, but he's one of them. But I think what's great about it is that what's what he's done is he's gone and learned how to be a football manager. So he goes to Walsall, but he's not at Walsall for five minutes. He's there for three or four years. And he learns at Walsall. And then he takes that to Brentford. And he learns at Brentford. He doesn't go to Brentford for six months and get a big job. He learns again at Brentford. And then he goes to Aston Villa. And every step of the way, there's been an increase in expectation, an increase in pressure, an increase in responsibility. But every time he's done it, he's done remarkably well. And I mentioned, in the, I mentioned this in the commentary at the weekend. But I also said, he then has the ability to know that when he signs Ollie Watkins last season, and one or two clubs would have looked at him and thought, ah, is he going to do it in the, in the Premier League? Can he step up? But, Dean Smith knows because Dean signed him from Exeter at Brentford and then he coaches him at Brentford. So he knows him. And then when he buys him, he's coming from a situation where he's got more chance to make it work because he knows the individual. And I think it's, it's really refreshing that he's almost done it the right way. We used to see this in, in years gone by where there was a process for a manager that clubs would look lower down and they'd build themselves up and take steps. And I think he's done that. And I think the experience that he's gained along that journey stood him in really good stead last year when times were hard in the first half of the season. By the way, the Villa hierarchy did a tremendous amount of respect and credit for last season too because they never thought about changing the manager. They knew they got the right man in the office, which is brilliant. Brilliant for him. And a lesson to others, I think, too. But I just think the way he's gone about becoming a manager and learning in the manner that he has, he's given himself the best chance to be successful, hasn't it? It seems obvious to do when you look at it. You'd say, well, yeah, that's course, that's what you do. I mean, you guys and me in our professions, we all started and went gradually up the ladder. Yeah, in football, that's often not the case. And then we look at Dean and say, I wonder why he's being so successful. Probably because he knows what it takes to be a manager, that he's experienced difficult times, he's experienced successful times, and he's taken something from everything. And now he's become a really good, rounded, Premier League quality manager who knows how to recruit, knows how to set a team up and has a body of experience to lean on when times get a little bit hard. So I just think he's done it the right way. And and on on the subject of him, he's just a really nice fella. You talked about your admiration of of Villa Park at the the beginning of this podcast. What's it like there when it's empty? I imagine it's not got the same vibe. And also any Premier League stadium that you that you're at at the moment, I imagine it's yeah. not the same, is it? No, it's 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 soul destroying, really, because we, we want to share it with everybody else. You know, you, you kind of stand there and you think this is this is like going to a, a New Year's Eve party and nobody's turned up. You know, everybody needs to be there enjoying this. And I think teams like Villa have got such a passionate fan base who fill that place through good times and bad. This is the season where the club would and the players would have wanted to share this with the supporters because it's been you know, a while since Villa have been this successful in Premier League terms and they've had results like they've been having consistently this season. So I really feel for the fans at the minute that 
they've had to sit and listen to the likes of me when really they want to be in there singing their songs and clapping their hands and being part of it, a bigger part of it. So it, it's soul-destroying, really. And you do notice it more at grounds like Villa, the big grounds, because it's even more cavernous and echoey than the smaller ones. So it's not been the same. But I think football in general needs a tremendous amount of credit to actually have got through this pandemic in the manner that they have, because I know they've all worked very, very hard. It's stressful for the staff at the club on match days because we all turn up. They've got their protocols to follow. We need to follow them when, when we're there. But everybody's got to try and do it with a smile on their face because it can be frustrating and difficult sometimes because it's not what you always always want. But I always think when the whole ends in full voice at Villa Park for a big match, it, it's one of the, the best experiences in English football. I was there for an FA Cup semi-final one year. Forest beat West Ham 4-0. Tony Gale was sent off for a challenge on Gary Crosby. We were at the other end that day. It was West Ham on the whole end. But all the same, to be in there that day was, was brilliant. And I've been there on, on many, many, many occasions to cover games. I actually sat there one day when Robbie Savage got hit in the face by the ball. He was... <laughs> He was sat next to me. We were commentating for Five Live. And you'll picture this. So the director's box, if you're facing the pitch, we're to the left of it. Stillian Petrov cleared the ball out. So this is how long it was. Stillian's cleared the ball out. And I'm watching, I'm commentating, and the ball's going to cross me. And there's, the, there's, a, there's a concrete wall between the director's box and the press box. Well, I'm watching this ball go across, and it hit the concrete wall and came back in a line. So, but Robbie's this side of me, so he can't see the path of the ball. But I'm thinking, if I don't move, it's going to hit me. So the last minute, I pulled out like this, and it's gone wham straight into Sav's hooter. There's a trickle of blood coming down. We're live on the air, and he's got it full in the face at Villa Park. So that's one of the uh, that's one of the memories that I'll always have from, from trips to Villa Park. Sav getting hit in the face. By a ricocheted Stillian Petrov clearance. Oh, I love that. that yeah. That's going to be clip. That's going to be clipped for social media. That bit. I mean, <laughs> I mean, not, not even not even Dylan Dublin's nut could could make Robbie Savage's nose bleed at Villa Park. So no, for, for that that to I, do I it. think Sav thought of all the places in the world that this would have happened as well because he knew he'd get no sympathy from anybody in there. <laughs> I was going to ask you just about the kind of art of commentary during during lockdown restrictions or during you know behind closed doors games. Do you have to work harder, A, in the sense of, you know, perhaps injecting more emotion where the crowd would have done that previously? And B, where you'd have used the crowd, you know, sometimes you'd be looking down at your notes, but a noise from the crowd would have made sure you looked, you, you glanced up straight away and saw, saw how the play was unfolding. Is it difficult? You're getting kind of different cues now. You're having to kind yeah. of pay more attention? Or? Yeah, I think, I think we're, we're used to it now. Um, it, it obviously doesn't feel the same because I think there are two, I think there are two types of football commentator. There's a football commentator that watches from on on high, and there's a football commentator that sits in with the fans. And I I always thought that was the big difference between Barry Davis and John Moxon. Both were absolutely brilliant, but Barry sat over the ground and he and he watched and he observed, and John sat with the punters. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. I I always try and be the commentator that sits with the crowd. And I, when I commentate, I, I like to feed off them. And I, I'll stand on the gantry before the game and you have a look round and you, you kind of try and connect with them. And then as the, as the game goes, you, you, you go with them. So it's been really different for me doing it without the crowd because I use them. Also, we've got this fake crowd noise that we have in our headphones. So I can turn that up to a level where it actually feels like there's a crowd in. 
And on a couple of occasions, I'll leave you to a secret. I've nearly said, there's a great atmosphere in here because it sounds great in my ears, but nobody's there. And you do actually forget and zone out. You think, oh, what a great noise this is. But of course, it's the fake crowd noise. So I turned that up quite loudly so that I would project my voice over that, which would be the same as projecting your voice over the crowd in the stadium. So that's a little trick that I use by just having that crowd noise to the volume that the crowd would normally be at. And that helps me do the job in a more realistic way. But when you take that out, we do the Champions League sometimes and we have to do them off tube because we can't travel overseas and they don't provide fake crowd noise. So that is a different thing because then you are just talking over silence, really, with the ball going and the players shouting. And when you do that, you do have to work a little bit harder to get your voice up and down so it does add or try and add a little bit more to to what's not there with, with the crowd noise not being there. But it has been different. I mean, we've, we've done so many different games in so many different ways. The room that I'm sat in now, I've commentated on the Bundesliga from this very desk with Glenn Hoddle and Steve McManaman, who were in entirely different places in, in their own house. <laughs> so you've got them on a laptop. You've got the Bundesliga on the telly. You're sat in your own room. We've had lads have... Uh, shopping deliveries come from supermarkets, <laughs> knocking on the door to try and deliver the weekly shop while they're commentating on a game from their house. I mean, it's been mad. There's a book in it somewhere because it's been absolutely crazy. But we're all enjoying it. We're all doing our best. We're, none of us have ever worked as hard as we're doing now because all the games are on the telly. So it's just been bonkers. It really has. It's been bonkers. Let you into a little secret from working from home as well. The viewers watching this, I was late to this podcast for by about five minutes. So I was cleaning the oven on shift as well, trying to multitask and do different things at once. Can you just talk us through like the process of a match day, Darren? Well, I know we play every five minutes at the moment, but kind of the day yeah. before a match, the preparation that goes into it, whether you have extensive notes, then when you arrive at the stadium and kind of the whole process, just to give us a bit of an insight on what it's like to commentate on yeah. a Premier League football game. The prep kind of happens continually because you, you, you're you going from game to game. So I try and watch as many matches as I can. I mean, it's impossible to watch all of them simply because <laughs> you'd never see your family. But in terms of my prep, over the couple of days before the match, I'm, I'm in the office and I'm looking at different things, watching some previous matches, making notes, that kind of thing, which is, which is what, which is tailored to what I use. All of, all of the commentators that I know do, notes in a different way and require different things on, on a match day. So that preparation is, 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 is pretty personal to us that we we would do it that way, but Clive Tilsley would do it this way or Martin Tyler would do it that way. There's not a set way of doing it. It's just what you're comfortable with. But on a match day, I mean, I ordinarily, I would get to the ground three hours before the game um, and spend time at the side of the pitch and in the tunnel and trying to grab a bit of information from, from various people. But, of course, at the moment, we can't do that. When you walk into a stadium now, there are amber zones and red zones. And we can't cross into this one. You can, so we don't really have that opportunity to mix with anybody, which is, which is quite right. You know, that, that's the last thing we need because we're coming from outside into, into their bubble. So I would get there a lot later now, maybe 90 minutes before kickoff, go into the stadium, get my notes, kind of go on to the gantry, watch the, the teams warm up, see if you see anything, any indication of what they might do in terms of if they're doing a defensive drill, how are they lining up? Is a midfielder dropping back in and doing anything? Have a look at the guys practising the shooting, the free kicks, you know, is 
is Jack Grealish just put six in a row in from 25 yards. Because if he gets a free kick, you might say, look, he's been sticking these in for fun in, in, in the warm-up. See how he does. Smashes it over the bar and makes you look stupid. Um, we, we are very restricted now as to where we can go. You know, we, we pretty much, we all fill out a medical questionnaire. We have temperatures taken um, and everything's very strict on, on what we can do. And then we just basically go to the areas that, that, that we're allowed to go. And that tends to be, from my perspective, either pitch side to do the team news with my co-commentator or onto the gantry. And when we get onto the gantry, we're, we're socially distant. So there's quite a gap between us um, to do the game. So it is, it is really, really different than normal. Um, but as I say, you know, it's, it's, it's something that we just have to respect and we have to do because we need the Premier League to be finished and we need to minimise the risk of, of games being affected by anybody bringing any kind of illness into the stadium. So everybody's trying to do their bit to make sure that it works. So take, take Saturday just gone and Jacob Ramsey stepped off the bench for the last 15 minutes. What, what note would you have next to Jacob Ramsey? Obviously he's only oh. played half a dozen games. Would you have? I've got my notes here, so I'll have a look, shall I? <laughs> uh, That's preparation for a true professional. So not a great deal. Just the fact that he's 19, started at Wolves in December made his senior debut for Aston Villa against West Brom in February last year. Not a great deal. I mean, you don't need to really tell anybody any more than that because then they'll make their mind up by what they see. Martin, who's alongside me then, would have an opinion on him as a player from what he's seen, which is his domain. I'm not going to try and tell anybody what kind of player Jacob is because I'm a commentator. I'm not an ex-player. So who am I to tell anybody that? So that would be where Martin would come in. But I just like to be in a position where when a player comes off the bench, you've just got a little bit of information just to just to move them into the broadcast. Because an Aston Villa supporter would know who, who Jacob is. A lot of other supporters might, but there will be fans who haven't seen him play before. So it's just that little bit of background as to this is the story. This is how old he is. He's making his way in the game. This is the experience that he, he has got. And then kind of over to him. Martin would then say, well, I've seen him and he does this well, he does that well. I like this about him. And then off we go. Another question that we've had from social media is how do you learn or hone the pronunciations of, of players? Because we've got Villa, he's not he's not had much action no. yet, but Villa has signed a player from uh, from Marseille. I know he's called Morgan, yeah. but I don't know I don't know how <laughs> yeah. to pronounce his surname. Well, I, I, th- I think it's how far you want to go. I mean, I, I commentated on him in the Champions League against Manchester City. And we were told it was Sanson, Morgan Sanson. Now, if you want to go the whole hog and go Sanson and really put the accent on, that's kind of up to you. But we, 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 we kind of felt that Sanson was, was, was about right. I think it's a, a really difficult one. I mean, some of the time, there are videos that we can go and watch where the player will say his name. A lot of people call Toby Alderweireld, Toby Alderweireld. But if you watch Toby Alderweireld say his name, he says Toby Alderweireld. So I don't know why you'd call him Toby Alderweireld, because he, he doesn't say it that way. <laughs> we had the situation last week with Martin Erdegaard, who played at the weekend against Villa. He said on his little video, my name is Martin Erdegaard, but in England, I don't mind if you call me Odegaard. I, I always try and, and pronounce the name as accurately as possible. But of course, in some cases... If you were to pronounce a Portuguese name, whether that be Brazilian or, 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 or Portugal, 
they're very different to, to, to the way we would say it. So a lot of the Brazilian players are, are totally different. Now, if we pronounce those names the way they're pronounced in Brazil, people would think we would start raving mad. <laughs> so it's a difficult one to say, why do you call him Andre Gomes instead of Gomes? Well, they would pronounce the S with a sh in Portugal. So we would say Gomes. But if, if we were to talk about some of the other players and they would say, why do you not pronounce it like that? Nobody would know who we're talking about because they're so different. So I think, you know, you've got to do your best. You're not always going to get it right. And it's how much accent you want to put on. But I always think that if you put, if you pronounce a certain player the way that it would be pronounced in, in his or her own country, you've got to do it for everybody. I know you're a Nottingham Forest fan, so this obviously doesn't apply to a Villa podcast, but have you ever found it difficult during your career to kind of differentiate your feelings and opinions on a situation and the job no. of commentating? No, not at all, not at all. I, I, we, we get accused a lot of being biased to both teams, which I always find quite amusing. You stick social media on and you know, done Man United against Liverpool and the Liverpool fans are telling you you're biased to Man U and the Man U fans are telling you you're biased to Liverpool and you're thinking, well, I've just said the same thing, so I must fall somewhere in the middle, which would be unbiased. So that's, that's kind of where it goes. Um, no, the, 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 listen, I, I, think it's, I think it's different. I think when you work in an industry as we do, yes, you retain an affiliation to a club, but you also build other relationships and affiliations to other clubs they tend to be the clubs that are the most helpful. So you want them to do well as well. You don't, I don't think you quite retain that, that absolute I'm living or dying by their results because it is your job. So you do tend to look at it in a slightly different light. If Forrest played anybody, I would want them to win. But likewise, if I'm commentating on them, I would commentate based on what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing. And the last thing I would be thinking about is, isn't this brilliant? I, I, I can just switch off. You know, we, we were happy a couple of years ago, two of the most helpful clubs that we deal with at the time were Spurs and Liverpool. And the fact that they both got to the Champions League final was great because the people that work there who help us every time we go and go the extra mile for us, you want, you want them to be part of a successful club. So you, you're rooting for those teams because they help you. You know, there are teams in the, in, the, in the country that don't want to help you. So you're not that bothered whether they win, lose or draw, are you? Because they don't help you. <laughs> but we're quite lucky in the Premier League, I think, that, you know, we, we have relationships with pretty much everybody. You know, so I, I said I go to Villa and the, the people at Villa, from walking in at the front door to walking out again, are a cracking bunch of people. They've got a smile on their face. They're nice people. They want to help. They're enjoying the day. Very professional so you you pull for people like that you know we're all we're all the same you know we, you want to be around nice people good people and, and the majority of, of the people that we deal with in, in football are exactly that if I feel like it'd be remiss of me to get somebody on who's involved with the Premier League and I'm watching Premier League games so often and not ask about VAR we end up talking about it feels like almost every game that Villa I mean every club oh. would probably say this but it feels like Villa were involved in it more so than anybody else yeah. what's VAR like being in there in the stadium trying to commentate and work out what a situation is going on I can't work out why it's proving so difficult no, me neither I, I don't understand I don't understand it I don't understand why it's so difficult I mean I, I, I was I'll be honest with you I was against it at the outset and I, and I, I if you go back I, I've said this on Five Live on my, my radio programme a lot I genuinely believe 
that goal line technology was was what we needed. And we had that and it was working great. And I don't think we needed any more technology. Um, I think it, it I, I, my own, this is only my personal view, but the way it's been administered hasn't been good enough. Um, I was in all the briefings before it started. I had a briefing from UEFA about how it would work in the Champions League. And I think I would say it's worked a lot better in the Champions League. I then sat in a room and listened to the Premier League briefing and what they plan to do. And I was a little bit more concerned listening to what the plan was. I thought, well, I don't think that's going to work as well as the Champions League. And it hasn't. Um, I think it's made football too forensic in terms of and off, if you're offside, you have to have some kind of advantage, in my opinion. It has to be advantageous to the attacker to be offside. Just standing next to each other has no advantage whatsoever. So in terms of the offside law, I don't really think it's fit for purpose at the moment with, with a line the judging that you're a centimetre further on than the other guy. I don't think that has any bearing on whether the goal would be scored or not. So I think they need to look at that. Um, and in general, I think if you are the referee... You've got to be switched on all the time without technology. You have to manage that game. You've got to manage situations. You've got to be decisive with your decision-making. You've got to be in tune with everything that's happening. And then the minute you say to everybody, you've got a safety blanket, that if you did miss it, we'll help you. I think you just zone out 10% because you know that you've got something to fall back on. You could just go to a screen or somebody's going to tell you. And I think it knocks the edge off the referees. And I think some of the referees that we've watched were better referees without VAR than they are with it. And that can only be that, for some reason, they're not quite as sharp as they were before. And, and if, if I'm honest, I would, I would take it out. It was supposed to be used for situations like the Thierry Henry handball that cost Ireland a place at the World Cup or the Euros, whichever it was. It was supposed to be for that. It's supposed to be for the hand of God. It's not supposed to be for everything that happens on a football pitch. And, you know, I can accept as a football fan that things will go against my team from time to time. It's part and parcel of it. And I'll be the first one in the pub after the game laughing when I get one in our favour. Because that's what happens. That's football, isn't it? You know, a mm. player makes a mistake. A referee will make a mistake. None of them make many. That's why they're in the Premier League. I thought it was good enough. And I think the games now, I fear that if you, if you said to somebody now, right, come and watch football. This is a football match and it's got all this VAR in. It's not what I fell in love with. I fell in love with the, the non-stop action, the, the controversy, the highs and the lows. It, it was this 90-minute roller coaster. And now it's this stop-start forensic oh it's just not right I I just don't I I don't think it does football any good I don't see it you're not going to convince me and I think football was better without it it's the not being able to lose yourself in a goal celebration for until until the the scoreboard tells you that you can crazy you know (laughs) the, the goal gets ruled out for something that the tightest of offsides that in no way shape or form has influenced the goal not not at all not at all I saw one very early and I said, I said at the time, they need to rewrite the law now because it was, it was Southampton against Derby in an FA Cup replay a couple of seasons ago and it just come in. And a goal was allowed because a player had headed it in 
was given for offside because the player was way goal-sided, the last defender. But when they looked at it by VAR, the guy's foot was sticking back through at the bottom. So he pushed out, but the foot was through. So you're thinking, the massive advantage for the fellows who's headed it in. But because his foot's through, that you wouldn't ordinarily see it gets ruled out. Or whatever it was, it was mad. And it, it, made the, it made the law not fit for purpose because you thought, but that, you wouldn't see that. You'd just swallow that and go, oh, you can't expect him to have seen that. You know, they're already human. I, I just think we're seeing really good people getting themselves in situations officiating that they never would have got themselves in before. It's just, it's just crazy. Crazy. How can you have a situation where something should be as forensic as it is and he's still so open to subjectivity and opinion. This was supposed to eliminate opinion and provide fact. There's more opinion about VAR than we ever had about any decision yeah. that any referee or lines person was doing. It's, it, it's just now become this, everything is, well, I don't agree with that, everything. But before we would go, it's all right. I did an FA Cup tie a couple of weeks ago, Brentford against Leicester, no VAR. I'm doing Swansea, Manchester City tomorrow. No VAR. I can't wait. <laughs> and if the bloke has a good game or a bad game, I don't care because it's him. He's doing it. Referee tomorrow night, Peter Banks. Can't wait to watch Peter Banks tomorrow night. And I don't care what Peter Banks does because nobody's going to interfere with him. Peter Banks is going to do a fine job tomorrow night. No problem. And he's going to get in his car and he's going to go home and he's going to wake up the next day and still be Peter Banks. I can't wait. I cannot wait. Get rid of it. Andre Mariners, his fourth official. Two people tomorrow night, Adam Nunn, Neil Davis, the assistants. They've got a job to do tomorrow. They've actually got to assist the assistants. They're going to put the flag up and it's going to mean something. They're not going to put the flag up and then somebody say, nah, should have done that. Should have done that. You know, that the line, look, look at the line. Forget the line. Put your flag up. That's enough. Get on with it. I can't wait. You know, do a football match tomorrow like it should be done. No VAR, bit of goal line technology. Peter Banks, Adam Dunn, Deal Davis, Andre Mariner. Fellas, can't wait to see you. Have a great night. Have a great night. I won't complain whatever happens. Just part of the game. I won't complain. So what happens in the situation like Villa Villa got, got done by that goal at Man yeah. City the other week. So, yeah. that, uh, Fletcher, are you expected to kind of know that interpretation oh. of the law? Do you have a well, producer in your ear or how, how do you cope with a well, situation we've, like we've that? Got Peter, we've got Peter Walton. So, I, I, it wasn't me doing the game. I was doing the other one. But I would just I would just defer to Peter because I, I learned a long time ago not to try and work out what the rules now are because they, they <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think I know sometimes, but I, I like the fullback. So, I would just go to Peter and say, What's happened there then? Like everybody else. <laughs> and he tells me what it is, you know. But in that case, it was just mad, wasn't it? I mean, everybody thought, well, that's wrong. But apparently it was right. And now they've changed it so it was wrong. So, but why are they complicating the game so much? Why? I mean, I would look at that last week or the a couple of weeks ago when it was. And I would say that was far more advantageous to Manchester City than any of these tight VAR decisions I'm seeing with lines across the screen. So that just makes no sense, does it? Nope. That if that is okay, yet the length of the toenail is meaning you're offside, the game's there's something wrong with the game. There's something wrong with the rules of the game. The NFL are brilliant, you know, because what the NFL do 
they constantly change. They're like a chameleon. So whatever they think people need, they adapt and adopt. So they will look at the rule book and they'll think, it's not really helping the game that. So they'll rewrite the rule. Every year they do it. They have a competition committee. They sit down, change the rules constantly to keep the product what everybody expects it to be. They're brilliant at it. But nobody thought before they introduced VAR to make sure that the rules that we currently have work properly with it. They've just added it to what already exists. And I think that's part of the reason why we're getting these, these mad situations, because these rules were written for the naked eye, real time, elements of human error, and they were written like that. Once you start to say, but now we've got an opportunity to make this 100% right, those rules then need refining, don't they? Because they've been written for a different circumstance that they're being used in now. So that, that's the concern. If they're going to stick with it, which I'm sure they will, they've spent too much money on it not to. They've mm -hmm. got to go away now, I think, and modify some of it so it works with VAR. At the minute, it works with humans. If it's going to start working with technology, it's got to be different. Do you think I'm talking nonsense there? Or do you agree? I, 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 that, that's just my view. Do you, do you think there's any validity no, I totally agree. The, the post-Man City podcast that we did was pretty much all about that decision and how the yeah. rules just aren't fit for purpose. And I'd almost forgotten about it a little bit, and now we've brought it up again. Right. I'm angry but again. Isn't, so. isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy that all we talk about now when a game's finished is what VAR did during the game yeah. and whether we uh, think it's right yeah. or wrong or whether it should exist? Surely, if you're selling a global game, we should be talking about great goals. The thing that always baffled me is that every rule and let me know if you agree with it. Every rule that has been written in in the last 10, 20 years, everything has been d designed to increase entertainment, to increase goals, to give attackers the advantage. They want the game to have more goals in it. Mm. So all the way back from passing back to the keeper, and the keeper can pick it up, you get rid of that and you make the game faster. So straight away... It's designed to bring you more. Everything's been designed for flow and excitement and goals. And then you bring in VAR, and how many goals have we lost this season alone that have been wiped off? Some really good ones too, by the way, where you've had five or six really crisp passes and a great finish, and then it gets ruled out because of, of an inch. And you're thinking, we just lost the goal of the season there for an inch, and we wouldn't have lost that last year. That would have won goal of the season. So... I can't work out why the rule makers have allowed so many great moments to just be wiped from the memory, expunged mm. from the records, because they can draw a line across the pitch that may or may not be right, depending on where the ball left the individual's foot and which pixel they can get to at that point. It's yeah. bonkers. Just, I, I can't work out why that's been allowed to happen. I mean, you talk about how many we've seen this season. We've seen three or four with Villa specifically, never mind the other 19. There you go. There you go. And everybody from every club who they follow, as you follow Villa as closely as you do, you sit down with everybody from the respective clubs, all 20 in the Premier League, they'll all give you three or four that they've had taken off them. Everybody. Yeah, and you say the um, the ones that would have been goal of the season last season, nobody would have complained about them either. No. Because they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have been freeze-framed in slow no. mode. You'd have just... Yeah. And you, you know, you know, the phrase would have been the phrase we all would have used, whether it be in a television studio or at home or in the pub or whatever it was. Well, you can't expect him to see that. We'd have forgiven. You can't mm. expect anybody to see that. No, of course you can't. So crack on. You can't expect anybody to see that, can you? So get on mm. with it. Let the goal stand.
Oh, ah, but hang on a minute. I've got this live. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brilliant. Cheers. The other thing I was going to ask you about the kind of art of commentary, and me and me and Dan have proved how bad we are by keep keep interrupting each other to to ask questions. How do you get that between you? You know, after you, no, after you, after you. Well, to be fair, uh, to be fair, we're blaming the technology as well. We, yeah. Although to be fair, you've commentated with people over the internet as well, so maybe that's not a good enough excuse. We just get to work with each other so much that you you kind of know the the kind of things that your summariser wants to talk about, and it. There's the golden rule, really, that you give the commentator the penalty areas, that when the ball's around a penalty area, you don't speak until a goal's gone in. Middle of the pitch, it's fine. But when it gets around the box, that's where something's likely to happen. Mm. So that's like the golden rule. Leave the penalty areas. Focus on the middle of the field when you're going to come in and make your point. And you just get to work and you know there's certain things that happens in a game that that particular co-commentator wants to talk about. So you, you just leave a little bit of a space. And if they don't come in, you pick up and go again. It's just about leaving the space. Give them a bit of space. If, if, if the summariser decides at that point they don't want to make it, off you go. Carry on. I've got a question that I'm not asking you to throw anyone under the bus and we can cut <laughs> this out if you take this the wrong way because I don't mean it in, this, in, a, in a negative way. Have you ever sat next to a co-commentator who's made a football point and you as a football fat fan have sat there and thought, he's talking nonsense there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I can tell you, I would have said a lot more and they would have thought, what's he on about? Than I'm on that. So the boot, the boot would have been on the other foot a lot more than that. But yeah, of course. Because again, a lot of it's opinion, isn't it? You know, you yeah. just kind of, And that's the beauty of it. You know, we could take over a couple of pints and we'd all see things differently. We'd all agree on some things, disagree on others, and we'd all walk out with a big smile on our face after because we've enjoyed it. So... Great. I opened the can of worms with VAR. I'm going to close that that door now. Um, cost my analogies there. I want to talk about Twitter and social media a little bit and, and, and what yeah. fans are like and, and kind of let you have your, your say on this as well. You've spoken about fans always think that you're biased against their sides and yeah. talking talking rubbish about a certain decision or whatever it is. Does that affect you at this point or have you been in the game long enough to just no. kind of let that go off your back? Look, I, I, I want to... I there's been a lot over the last few weeks about the bad side of social media and it's it's completely justified and the responsibility i think lies with the individuals the perpetrators and also the the social media companies i find it difficult to work out that i can go on instagram and i can look at something to buy and then the next time i go back on i've got 50 adverts for something similar so they Mm -hmm. kind of know what i'm doing I find it difficult that they would then say, ah, we can't find these accounts, can't shut these accounts down. We don't, it's, it's not quite that easy. It is. They, they, they should have the responsibility to do that. Racism and abuse has to be taken away. It's a worrying time at the moment, I think, um, with the, the marriage between social media and football, that, that we're at a tipping point, whether it be racism, whether it be the death threats that... that Mike Dean suffered this week. It's got to stop. Has to stop. And football and the social media companies have to work together to to eradicate it. I'm not going to sit here, though, and say that that is social media in general, because 98% of my experience of social media is a positive one. You know, there's nothing better than interacting with genuine football fans who Mm. feel as passionately about the game as you do. And I don't mind if somebody thinks I... I'm biased towards their team or I could have done that better or they disagree with the point that I've made. Great. We're entitled to do that. It's, it's how people do it. And, and I, I've been subject to do it sometimes, not as much as others. 
I'm not going to sit here and say I have a nightmare on social media because I don't. Social media for me is a, is a relatively good experience. But I think we all need to work together to, to, to make sure that it gets cleaned up and mm. a lot of this rubbish stops because it's having such a, a profound effect on people. It's just wrong. Um, but no, in, in, in general, I, I really enjoy it. I, I enjoy nothing more than sticking a football statement up on social media and then seeing what people think. And, it, and it's nice when people agree. It tests you when people don't. Mm. Sometimes you think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back at that because that's a really good point. I've not seen that. I just think we've got away from that a little bit now. That you know, I want to be able to stick something up about Aston Villa, you know, my opinion from the weekend. And people can agree or disagree with that. And we can, we can throw it around. That's what it is. That's what it is. We're all accessible to each other. What you don't want to go on is... is you, you, you have an opinion about somebody's football club or a 90-minute football match, and all of a sudden your personal life and, and you and everything else gets dragged under a bus. I mean, it's just bonkers. Mm. Um, but I, I think that is a minority. I genuinely do. I think it's a minority of people who are going to be like that regardless. But, you know, I, I think the big picture is social media has to be managed better and the, the rules need to be more stringent abuse needs to stop there needs to be harsher penalties against the perpetrators and we've got to clean it up but i think in general if you're a football supporter you want to interact with me on social media i'm all for it because that's what i'm on there for i like it and i can't sit here as a football commentator and expect everybody to think i'm the best thing since sliced bread a lot of people are going to think i'm crap well that's not <laughs> fine but i don't mind that it's not a problem but you've not got to drag me over the coals for it. You can say, listen, yeah. I, I, I prefer all the commentators to you. Great. I prefer all the commentators to me. <laughs> <laughs> I prefer all the commentators to me too. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is from my standpoint. The bigger picture is what I'm concerned about. Not, mm. not me. Just, um, just finally for me, just on the on the um, the Matty Cash thing. You mentioned Matty Cash earlier. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much for him, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Does you're welcome. does it does it kind of give you kind of mixed emotions when you see a player go on? Do, you know, when 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 a player joins the kind of biggest club in the Midlands from 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 Forest. Um, <laughs> so we we got an hour we got an hour's worth in the bag first before we start. I know you can start digging in now. Um, what 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 do you feel? Do you feel kind of glad that Forrest played a part, a big part in his development, or a little bit sad that Forrest aren't there to to continue his development? Or how yeah, how do you I, see it in in his terms? I think I'm, I'm I'm disappointed that they couldn't get promoted last year and keep hold of him because I think you know they, they were close at one stage and then it fell away. That would have been nice, but I'm proud of him. I'm, I'm proud of him because he's a he's a he's a he's a cracking lad. He's a he's a genuine genuine fella. Um. He's, he's worked really hard to get where, where he is. You know, he's not um, he's not wonderfully gifted in terms of he was always going to be a professional footballer. He's had a few knockbacks along the way and he's always been able to come through. Um, one thing Forrest are, are really good at is developing players. My son's in the academy at the minute. He's, he's only 12, so he's, he's starting off. But it's a real inspiration to the young boys in his year when they see Matty doing what Matty's doing now. You know, Matty Cash having Nicholas Pepe in his pocket at the weekend. He's brilliant for the young boys at Forest because they think he can be them. So I'm proud of him. And we exchanged a few messages on, on Saturday because I'd said a couple of nice things about him on the match. 
completely justified. I thought he was the best player on the pitch. Martin gave Tyro and Mings man of the match. I thought Matty Cash was the best player on the pitch. They threw Pepe at him first. They threw Saka at him in the second half. And he had William as well. And not one of the three gave him a problem. Um, so I thought he was I thought he was Villa's best player by a distance. And we, we exchanged a few messages at the weekend, you know, thanks for being nice, blah, 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 blah. But no, I'm 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 chuffed to bits for him. And I think if he carries on like this, he'll come under serious consideration for England. You know, it's a really difficult slot at the minute, the fullback positions, because England have got a load of them. But he's been fantastic this year and he's only going to get better. Beauty of it is, came through at the Academy at Forest as a winger and only played fullback really for one year. And that was the year before he joined Villa and he took to it superbly well. Honest as the days long, really nice fella. Enjoy him because you've got a, you've not only got a good footballer there, you've got an absolute diamond of a lad too. So it's, it's yeah, you're welcome. I just want to go back to commentary quickly and we're area of the time. We'll let you go in a, in a minute. Um, do you watch other commentators or watch other games yeah. and listen to other commentators and think, oh, I quite like this or oh, yeah. oh, I don't like the way oh, he's phrased yeah. that or anything like that and take things from them? Absolutely. You know, I, I think, I mean, I know we talked about some of the stick people get, but I think we've got so many brilliant commentators at the moment. I think it's a, it's a, it's a great time for football commentary and all of them. We can all learn from all of them. I watch sometimes and you think, all oh, right, I'll have a listen to, oh, I, liked, I liked how he did that. I'll, I'll nick a bit of that, you know, because you, you, they're brilliant. You know, I've, I've reached out to people in the past, you know, my, my head's not that big that I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, I've got it all worked out. 18 months ago, I, I reached out to Clive Tilsley, who's been in the profession a lot longer than me. And I said, look, I want to get better. Will you, will you, would you help me? And Clive was gracious enough to, to say, yeah. And he spent a bit of time and he said, you know, you, you, have you thought about this? What about trying that? Have a little look at this. And, and I, I, I learned so much from, from having that time with him to pick his brains about what I do. Um, and I, 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 I listen to and watch everybody uh, in admiration. And I think, right, you know, I can, I can learn from them. And it helps mm. me get better. And also, you know, they're that good, most of them, that you've got to stay on your toes, otherwise you're going to lose your job because there's so <laughs> many good ones there, you know. And, and I, 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 I feel very fortunate to be able to learn from my peers at the moment and, and 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 try and become better by by feeding off them and listening to them and and asking them for their advice that's brilliant thank thanks so much for your time i'm still smirking at the um the savage being hit full in the face with the clearance from <laughs> petrov so you'll have to have to excuse me for being so juvenile but it's been a been an absolute pleasure for you to yeah, give us really an hour of your time if, if anybody if anybody wants to hear it if you go on youtube somebody's put it on as an audio file oh, lovely. If, if you put robbie savage gets hit in the face by the ball it's on there and <laughs> I, I, I have to tell the story live on the match he just got hit in the face by the ball and <laughs> his, his headphones were hanging off and his nose was bleeding so if Philip fans are feeling a bit low at any stage and they want to cheer it up <laughs> Sav won't mind you going on there and having a listen. I love that. That's brilliant. Thank, thanks so much for your time. Um, yeah, hope. Let, listen, I'll, I'll be nice to you now as well. Let's hope. Let's hope that that does become a Premier League kind of Midlands fixture. Probably. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be next season, to be well, honest. But I think we're away off. Maybe the one after that. I think we're away off. I think by the time Forest get promoted, they might have sorted VAR out, so it could be a little wobble. <laughs> Blimey, don't don't dream too big. <laughs> now, thanks so much for that. Um, you've been watching Claret and Blue ABFC Extra with myself, Matt Kendrick, Dan Rollinson, and our special guest, Darren Fletcher. So until ne- till next time, 
up the villa thank you for listening to avfc extra an additional dose of aston villa content for you brought to you by the claret and blue podcast team if you enjoyed the episode please do get in touch with us get involved in the comment sections tweet us at claret blue pod or leave us a review on itunes we really do appreciate it we'll catch you again very soon with some more content until then up the villa (laughs) 